This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the text! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report, my independent investment newsletter. Uh, Every week I go through a ton of reading and research uh, charts, um, and I select a handful of these things every week to highlight in my free email newsletter that goes out Saturday mornings. Uh, If you're interested in receiving something like this, just go to thefelderreport.com. Right there on the homepage, you can sign up and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Eric Townsend. Um, This is Eric's second time on the podcast. If you didn't hear the first episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to that one. Not that it's necessary for this one, but it'll really give you some um, understanding of Eric's extensive background to discuss the topics that we do in this episode. Um, He also just tells some fantastic stories about his time as a kid, sneaking into MIT, learning how to program. Um, He just has a a unique uh, and extensive background in the technology industry, but also over the past couple of decades, Eric has spent uh, learning how to trade macro and, in fact, starting his own hedge fund in the space and really developing an expertise here. So this episode, uh, we essentially have dedicated to uh, the intersection of these two things, where technology meets macro. And Eric has some insights uh, in this regard that I have not heard discussed by anybody else in the world. And so to me, it's just super fascinating stuff. And it's coming from somebody who has uh, a, a very insightful and unique perspective in the area. So I, I really hope you enjoy my second conversation with Eric Townsend. Hey, I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Eric Townsend, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Jesse. It's great to be here. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I was thinking about when we were talking about doing this episode that it was just about exactly a year and a, a year ago. You and I were talking about Bitcoin and and uh, talking about doing an episode on cryptocurrency, and we kind of both decided that we thought it was a speculative mania, and I, I really didn't want to kind of dignify that with an episode. I thought, you know, we're both going to agree, and then there's probably not a whole lot to talk about after that. Although you did write uh, a terrific white paper at the time, which I did share with my network, which I thought was a wonderful um, kind of expose on on the topic and was very, very, very timely. But you, you brought this back to my attention again recently um, with the book that you recently just published. And um, I want to I want to let you start. Um, I, you know, there's so much to get to in the book, but I want to let you start. But with what is cryptocurrency, and um, why is it not the currency of the future that that people think it is? Well, what really led me to write the book, Jesse, was the realization myself that I was making the mistake of only looking at cryptocurrency for the sake of what it is. And I realized there's two separate and distinct things that happened here. One is the invention of digital cash and an underlying technology called distributed ledger, which really is a bona fide breakthrough in the field of computer science, an ownerless database that's distributed across a network. It's a really, really brilliant idea. So I really think that those things do have the potential to change the world in a really big way. But what is cryptocurrency, really? 
Cryptocurrency is the inventors of those really cool technology innovations running an experiment to see how long libertarian privacy activists can get away with coining their own money before the government steps in and says, hey, you're not allowed to do that. For thousands of years of monetary history, the governments have never allowed anybody other than the government or its designees to coin money. And the cryptocurrency guys are coining their own money. And what I realized is... All of the people who make, including you and I, who have made very strong criticisms of cryptocurrency and said it's a speculative mania and so forth, the reason we were right about that is because it's not realistic for uh, people who are have invented some cool technology to expect that governments will allow them indefinitely to get away with coining their own money, doing something that nobody else has ever been allowed to do before. But what they did do along the way was invent technology that really does have the potential to change the world. So what the book is about is separating digital currency from cryptocurrency and explaining why digital currency technology has the potential to completely revolutionize the entire global monetary system. We're not really working on that now because the people who know the most about it are completely engaged in this cryptocurrency thing, which is really designing a, a digital currency system whose design goal is to uh, alienate governments and to create an alternative to government-issued money, which they think is going to take the world over. And, you know, I, as a libertarian on some level, it might be nice if they were right, but I really don't think it's realistic. I think what's more likely is governments will shut it down eventually. But what I don't think is really going to be lost in all this is the invention that occurred of uh, – Distributed ledger and double spend proof digital cash really does have in incredible amounts of potential. Eventually, governments are going to wake up and recognize that, and we'll see government backed digital currencies. Already, Christine Lagarde from the IMF has announced and, you know, that, that central bankers should be looking at this. So they're finally starting to slowly wake up, and I think we're going to see a sea change in the digital currency space where people wake up and realize, wait a minute, maybe it's not all about cryptocurrency. Maybe it's more about government-issued digital currency. Well, you make a very interesting uh, parallel to the dot-com mania too, how you know those a lot of the stock prices and stuff went completely nuts during the dot-com mania. It was clearly a speculative mania. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to quote you here. Actually, you say... Um, uh, you know, the, sim the, the situation with cryptocurrency is very similar in that a large group of novice investors made a classic mistake confusing value and price. More specifically, they interpreted rapidly increasing price as evidence of rapidly increasing value when there was no fundamental basis for high eva evaluation. So what, what you're saying is that cryptocurrencies themselves, Bitcoin, Ethereum, what, what have you, don't necessarily have uh, an intrinsic value that supports the prices that we've seen over the past few years, maybe even still the prices today. But there is some underlying value, just like the dot-com mania, right? They, there was a revolution that was taking place in online communication and these types of things. And there's a revolution taking place here, which is the benefits of digital currency over conventional currency are tremendous. And you could revolutionize the... You could completely re-architect the whole global monetary system and make it much, much better and deliver profound, profound benefits to society. It would be really be great. Now, where I think a lot of that perceived value in cryptocurrency tokens that we saw in this 
speculative mania over the last few years. Where that came from was a lot of people holding an unrealistic expectation that these cryptocurrencies themselves would grow to the point of becoming dominant global currencies and you know the U.S. dollar would be replaced by Bitcoin. Uh, I think that there's a very, very real chance that the U.S. dollar will be replaced in its role as global reserve currency by a digital currency. But I don't think it's Bitcoin. I think it's much more likely to be a government-backed digital currency system. Yeah, but still, you, I think in the book you mentioned that uh, you do believe Bitcoin is, you know, qualifies as a currency under the uh, the, uh, the classical definition of, of a currency. Um, Let's talk about that. How, what what actually constitutes uh, a, a legitimate currency? Well, there's something called the tripartite definition, which says that a currency needs to do three things. It needs to be a store of value. You can hold value, and you're still going to have the same purchasing power at some later time in the future. Uh, the next thing is a medium of exchange. You can use it to buy and sell stuff. And uh, finally, a unit of account. You can keep track of how much your things are worth by valuing them in uh, you know, how much currency it takes to buy them. So those are the three functions of money. And one of the things that's been going on is central bankers have been very quick to say, well, these crypto tokens, they're not really money. They don't meet the tripart definition. And I couldn't disagree more strongly. They are money. They are legitimately money. But they are money which is being coined by libertarian privacy activists whose agenda is to create something that's kind of, you know, thumbing their noses at central bankers saying, neener, 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 we're going to create a digital currency system that's better than your government-issued currency, and we're going to compete with government-issued currency, and the whole world is going to see that we're smarter than you are, and they're going to use our stuff instead of what the government issues. Um, I just don't think that that is realistic. Governments have not really figured out what these things are yet. And what we see going on is government is reacting to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in their uses for things they were not really designed for, which is criminals are using them for drug deals on the Internet and so forth. That's not what you have to worry about. You have to worry about what, what Bitcoin was designed for, which is to offer a superior alternative to government-issued money. And when the government figures out that, hey, in a lot of ways, it really is superior to government-issued money. And this trend potentially will continue to grow. Right now, we're seeing that I think that, you know, we're seeing a collapse in this speculative bubble. It doesn't mean there can't be another wave in it. You never know what will happen uh, next. But I think already, as Christine Lagarde's announcement a couple of weeks ago evidences, what we're already seeing is governments are waking up and saying, wait a minute, these cryptocurrencies that where the money is coined by a bunch of libertarian privacy activists, no, we don't like that. But the idea of digital currency that we're in charge of, hey, wait a minute, you know, they design cryptocurrency for the purpose of taking power away from government because technology gives you the ability to change how much, how much power government has. We could use technology in the opposite direction. We could design a digital currency system which makes it easier for government to track every penny of wealth and know who's got it and where they got it from and be able to monitor uh, international 
transactions for terrorism and fight crime and do on, so on and so forth. All the things that are difficult to do because cash in a conventional system is untraceable, they could create a digital cash system which is traceable and which governments uh, end up eventually asserting as a replacement for cash. So the way you could get to outlawing cash is through a government-issued digital currency. Now, governments are famously nowhere close to as smart or as on top of things as the private sector. So it's a good 10 years later after Bitcoin was invented that they're just finally starting to wake up to this. But my prediction is eventually governments will recognize that nobody stands more to uh, benefit from the invention of distributed ledger and double spent proof digital cash than central banks themselves. And they'll realize that issuing their own central bank issued digital currency is the way of the future. It gives them an incredible amount of new power. And some of it is really good. We could have much more effective monetary policy tools that would allow central bankers to do their jobs with tools that are more sophisticated than the, the horse and buggy technology that we have to manage the economy today. Problem is that could get taken too far to an Orwellian outcome where you have government having way too much authority over the, mon the money system. So one of the things I emphasize in the book is as we go through this digital currency revolution, right now in this very first preface to the first chapter, which is called cryptocurrency, the technology was used to take power away from government. My prediction is government's going to get on the bandwagon and use technology to give more power to government. And at some point, it's going to get excessive. And we're going to have to, you know, we as a society are going to have to look at that very carefully and say, okay, who's in charge of keeping the government under control and not allowing it to overstep the authority that it should have over the populace through the design of the currency system? Yeah, and, and that was one of the things I think I remember talking with you about a year ago is that as soon as the, the you know, cryptocurrencies, if they were ever to grow to the point where they started displacing, you know, U.S. issued, you know, government uh, money or, you know, any any sovereign authority to kind of control the, the money supply, the government would step in and just say that, yeah, we're, we're not having this, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to uh, take this over or, or shut it down or, or one of the, the two. Um, but I want to come back to this idea of a store of value, because to me, this was also one of the clear things to me that you cannot, and, and I'm honestly surprised you didn't, you don't mention in the book, um, the, the hard forks that Bitcoin's, Bitcoin has gone through in the last 18 months, because to me, that immediately disqualifies it as a store of value. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's an excellent point. I'd say, first of all, you could design a digital currency system so that it doesn't have hard forks. The reason that hard forks have to be a possibility in the design of Bitcoin is that you have a completely decentralized architecture in Bitcoin that depends on this idea of mining and having miners. And as long as there are miners, uh, you, you can have the, a disagreement among miners where they 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 fractionize into different groups that have different values where the direction of the currency system should go. And since the miners are in control of validating and adding transactions to the blockchain, they can say, hey, we got a bunch of miners over here that don't like the miners over there. We disagree with them. Let them take their tokens and their direction on their own blockchain, and we'll take ours in our direction, and we'll make up a different set of rules than they have. That's what a hard fork is. As I describe in the book, 
the reason you have minors in the first place is a shortcoming. It's not a good thing. The reason you have to have minors is because in order to create a completely decentralized distributed ledger, so far, and I emphasize the words so far, the only way anybody has figured out how to do it is with this proof-of-work algorithm, which is ridiculously wasteful of resources, and that's the reason why the Bitcoin network consumes more electricity than entire nations. That is not going to exist forever. There's already a lot of really smart people who have, first of all, come up with a better way of designing a distributed ledger if you're willing to give up complete decentralization. There's something called a permissioned ledger, which can eliminate the need for mining completely. My prediction is that before long, we'll have fully decentralized ledgers, which eliminate the, the need for mining completely, and you won't have this risk of hard forks developing. Also, in a government-issued digital currency system, you're not dealing with you know bitcoin is by its culture uh it is created around this idea that nobody's in charge it's completely decentralized and there's a community of people communities can can break apart if you have something that is designed and controlled by some degree of central authority then it doesn't necessarily have to be vulnerable to having hard forks in it the other thing I'd say about store of value is still what Bitcoin, it's, this will upset the Bitcoin audience, but as much as they don't like to hear it, what Bitcoin really is today is a type of digital fiat currency. It doesn't have any intrinsic value. And some people would like to say, no, 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 that's not true. It's a, it's a commodity currency because the intrinsic value is formed by the cost of the electricity that goes into the proof of work algorithm in order to in the mining process in order to validate the blockchain look that's an inherent shortcoming it's a design flaw in this first incarnation of distributed ledger technology someday we'll break the proof of work barrier we won't need the inefficiency of proof of work we won't need miners anymore and we won't have all of these shortcomings uh to contend with. So as far as what, and, and the other thing, I guess the other fallacy of that argument, when people say the electricity that goes in creates a, a uh, an intrinsic value behind the currency, what a commodity money currency is, and I've got a whole chapter explaining this, commodity money is when you use something that has value for other uses. So you use gold or silver coins as money. Why? Because people want the gold and silver. They can use it to make jewelry. One of the earliest currencies on record is the Mesopotamian shekel going back, uh, you know, thousands of years BC. It was, uh, I think it's 160 grains of barley. The point is people have to eat the, the currency. If you can't use it as currency, you can still eat it. It has value. To say that Bitcoin has intrinsic value because of the commodity value of the electricity that went into producing it is crazy. You can't get that electricity back out of it. You can't use that electricity for some other purpose the way you can use the gold and a gold coin to make jewelry with. So there is no alternative use for the the value that goes into it. So what a cryptocurrency token really is, 
is that it's less than fiat currency. Just like fiat currency, it has no intrinsic value. Now, the definition of fiat currency is a currency that has no intrinsic value, but it has the blessing of government. Some government somewhere says this uh, currency has value because we said so. By act of law, we are requiring people to use this currency in order to settle all debts and to pay taxes with. Therefore, the law of the land says you got to use it. Uh, a cryptocurrency token is just like a fiat currency, but it lacks that government decree. So it's one step less than fiat currency. The, the crypto guys will, that are in our audience will be absolutely furious with me by now because they say, no, 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 no. That's the, you're missing the whole point. Crypto is not fiat. It's better than fiat because it has commodity value. That's nonsense. It has no commodity value. It, it, that, that, that's a, a completely hollow and false argument. So I think that you're right that if you look at cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin that can hard fork, you can definitely make the argument that, wait a minute, the store of value, because now the, the size of the money supply is unknown. For as many hard forks as you have, you could double the size of the money supply any number of times over. That's exactly right, Jesse. But by the same token, pardon the pun, you can also design a digital currency system that doesn't have all those problems. The, the technology exists today to do that. Right. And, you know, I'm really glad that you brought up um, this history of money um, because I, I enjoyed that chapter. And I, and I think that's actually one of the, the real values of the book is you talk about the history of money. You talk about what, what defines a currency. You talk about the history of the dollar as reserve yeah. currency. I mean, these are all wonderful macro concepts that for people who aren't familiar, the book it, it provides a great introduction to these things. But I want to come back to this idea uh, of commodity money because you talk about how money goes through cycles over history. It begins with commodity money, it moves to representative money, and then fiat. Uh, we end up with fiat like we have today, and we all end up, they all end up going back to commodity money at some point. Um, and this is kind of w what you're looking for uh, when it comes to um, digital currency. Is that, is that right? Well, yeah, I see two really big opportunities. Number one, why do fiat currencies usually end up collapsing in the end and everybody who still holds those currencies ends up losing their money? It's usually through irresponsible actions of government. And one of the biggest arguments, you know, why don't we just have one global currency system that everybody agrees on and uses so we could eliminate all of this hassle of foreign exchange? Well, the answer is because nobody trusts any one government to be in charge of issuing everybody else's money. What digital currency technology gives us is the opportunity to create effectively a better fiat money system where it's fiat money, but governments don't have the ability to just arbitrarily change the rules after the fact and do reckless and irresponsible things with the currency. So you can design a fiat currency system that has a set of rules that are enforced and imposed collectively by software running all over the world in different countries. And no one authority, no one central authority figure has the ability to override everybody else. So it's a better way of building a, a uh, fiat currency system. But more to the point, if you wanted to go back to a representative money system, which means you're using something like paper uh, 
paper bills or or digital tokens, as the case may be, that are not commodity money, but they're backed by a commodity that exists in a vault someplace, as we had when we had the gold standard behind the U.S. dollar. Uh, if you want to create something like that, again, you've got a much better set of technology. If you had the U.S. dollar and you say, okay, the, the, the dollar is supposedly backed by gold reserves, the government kept changing the rules behind the scenes and not usually telling everybody what it was doing and redefining exactly how much gold backing there really was behind dollars. You could create a better fiat money system or a better representative money system using digital currency technology than you can with trusting any one single government to be in charge of a paper currency system. And you pull together, you know, a lot of these signs are pointing to the same direction. To me, one of the things that's interesting to me about the book was that you pull together a bunch of seemingly disparate facts, like Russia and China have been accumulating gold in recent years. China has been hiring blockchain programmers. Uh, Russia has been proposing a move away, publicly proposing a move from away from the dollar. I think even Putin was just asked about it uh, last weekend. Putin recently met with the creator of Ethereum. Um, when you put all these things together, right, as separate news stories, they're like, oh, okay. But when you put them all together, as you do in the book, it's 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 it seems almost inevitable that uh, they are are looking at creating a digital currency that uh, would kind of free them from the uh, you know dollar hegemony. Well, and a lot of people have misinterpreted what I was trying to say, so let me just clarify a, a point there. What a lot of people thought I was saying is making a prediction that Russia and China are going to replace the U.S. dollar as global reserve currency with a, a, a Russian ruble that's a digital currency or something. I don't think that's remotely possible. And in fact, I, I think I'm pretty clear in the book, although a lot of people seem to have misinterpreted it, saying, I don't think a Russian ruble or, or a Chinese yuan that's becomes a digital yuan or a digital ruble is going to change everything. I, I, I don't think anybody wants the digital form of that currency any more than they want the paper form of it. What I am saying is it's very, very clear that China and Russia are frustrated that the U.S. dollar continues to enjoy this hegemony over the rest of the system through its role as global reserve currency. And they're trying to figure out what they could possibly do to dethrone the dollar. It's very, very clear to me, and I go, as you say, in, into all kinds of evidence of, of this in the book, it's very, very clear that they have recognized digital currency technology is a potential tool of leverage that they could use in order to challenge the dollar's role as the world's global reserve currency. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily a digital ruble or a digital yuan. It may mean that China and Russia try to lobby other countries to create an independent digital central bank that creates a new global digital currency, which is not a, a Russian or a, a, a Chinese state-backed currency, but rather it's an independent central bank that issues this digital currency. And one of the things I've speculated they might do is try to start by encouraging smaller emerging market nations around the world that currently denominate their debt in U.S. dollars to refinance it in this new digital currency. Because, you know, to, to re-denominate a major nation's sovereign debt, let's take all of the U.S. 
you know, you know, the U.S. government's $20 trillion of debt and re-denominated in a global currency, that's a really, really big undertaking. It will be very hard to pull that off. But if you're Russia and China and you're trying to figure out how do we get the rest of the world to stop putting the dollar at the center of the universe, well, what if we designed a digital currency system and a digital sovereign bond market that allows little countries like the Philippines or Vietnam to re-denominate their sovereign debt in a digital currency system? And what if we designed this digital sovereign bond market to make it appeal to central bankers as a reserve asset so that we start to encourage more and more central banks to diversify out of U.S. dollars? Can we start a gradual process that eventually leads to the dollar losing its prominence? So it's not an expectation that, you know, Russia creates a, a digital ruble, and that becomes the new global reserve currency. I don't think there's any chance of that. What I do see very actively happening is China and Russia are actively, actively engaged in investing in this technology. People's Bank of China filed more patents on digital currency technology than anyone else in 2017. Something's going on here. Why are they so interested? It's not like, you know, Sergei Glaziev, the, the father of de-dollarization in Russia, giving a keynote speech to a blockchain conference. It's not like Sergey just decided he's a Bitcoin a maximalist and wants to, to go hang out with Bitcoin guys. Something more is going on here. And I don't know exactly what the agenda is. And I don't think they do either. I think they're saying, we, we're sick and tired of the U.S. being in charge of everything. Is there a way that this digital currency stuff could help us challenge, us, challenge that? Let's try to figure it out. And I think they're in an exploratory um, effort to try to see how digital currency might help them to eventually dethrone the dollar as the world's global reserve currency. Yeah, when I read it, I absolutely didn't see it as you forecasting that there was going to be a new digital ruble that was going to own the, you know, dethrone the dollar. I think the analogy that you make in the book, which is very apt, is um, it's almost like a new space race that these countries see the value in owning this new technology and, and getting a head start here. And that eventually probably the U.S. is going to wake up and say, hey, in order to maintain this dollar hegemony, we're going to have to really make some big strides here in digital currency. Um, uh, what, uh, but so far, we haven't seen the U.S. Um, kind of showing those types of signs. No, we haven't seen any sign of that at all. And I think that that's where there could be an aha moment that changes everything. Right now, yeah, you've, you've had China working for a couple of years hiring blockchain engineers. Who knows what exactly they're, they're up to? It, it's not changing the world that we live in. I, what I, I describe in the book is, you know, if you look at uh, space travel, it was predicted for more than 100 years before it ever happened. Science fiction guys and futurists were talking about ray guns and flying saucers and little green men from Mars. Everybody knew about it, but nobody took it seriously. Then literally one day, October 4th, 1957, when the Sputnik satellite orbited the Earth, it was that oh shit moment where the government of the United States says, it's not science fiction, it's science fact, and the Russians are ahead of us. And if they stay ahead of us and they gain control of space, the military consequences are frightening. Suddenly, overnight, there was nothing more important than how do we catch up with and get ahead of the Russians. And I think what you could see is that same sudden moment where the U.S. government goes from dismissing uh, cryptocurrency as something that central bankers don't take seriously, and it's just the, this stuff that millennial privacy 
activists are playing with that nobody really cares about. It's at the, the, the little green men from Mars and ray gun stage. Then they wake up one day and they say, oh boy, China and Russia really are working with this technology, trying to figure out how to design something that could eventually dethrone the dollar and take away our reserve currency status. This is a risk to America's hegemony over the global financial system. Nothing is more important than us being the ones, than the United States being the ones. And if that happens, as I predicted eventually will, there's a very good chance that the U.S. is the winner because from, you know, who's got the technology capability to build a digital currency system that could really revolutionize the entire global economy. The technology exists in the United States more than it exists anywhere else, and the U.S. has the wherewithal to, to do that. And furthermore, I think it's much more likely that what happens is as governments start to wake up, you know, governments didn't design missile systems and all that stuff in the Cold War. They didn't design spaceships. The private sector did that for them. And I think the opportunity in the private sector will be for people not, you know, if you look at what Silicon Valley and Sand Hill Road venture capitalists are focusing on now, it's like, okay, where do I find the cryptocurrency uh, was kind of last last five years story. Now it's not about the cryptocurrency. They're looking at things like XRP Ledger or Ripple, which is more of a cryptocurrency designed for bankers trying to get more commercial. I think what they'll eventually wake up to is, oh, the really big, bigger than Google, bigger than Facebook, bigger than all that stuff combined, uh, unicorn opportunity for Silicon Valley is to design and engineer the ultimate global digital reserve currency system and sell it to government. So instead of cryptocurrency, which is designed to kind of thumb its nose at government and say, neener, 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 you guys can't do anything to stop us. You design a digital currency system whose purpose is to appeal to central bankers as a superior currency that's better than conventional currencies because it offers much more powerful monetary policy tools and much more effective ways for government to track things that Bitcoiners don't want them to be able to track. And you sell that technology to the governments of the world and you eventually create a global digital central bank, which has a technology partner in Silicon Valley behind it, which is creating all of this technology and designing it. That's where the really huge, huge opportunity exists. And I don't think we're quite there yet, because frankly, if you were to design all that stuff, if you were the Silicon Valley entrepreneur that really conceived the ultimate global reserve currency system that's going to completely change the whole world, the audience that you need to sell it to, which is the Federal Reserve and other major central banks around the world, they've still got their head between their knees. They haven't figured out what crypto is yet, never mind why digital currency has more to benefit them than anyone else. But they're starting to wake up. And as they do, I think the private sector will step up to it and be ready to offer them something that is designed for the benefit of central bankers rather than cryptocurrency, which is designed to frustrate central bankers. And that's a really good point. I think, you know, they haven't really woken up to it because they don't really have a huge incentive to wake up to it uh, like a lot of other countries do that are frustrated with, um, you know, dollar hegemony like we were talking about before. And I really do think this is one of the, the, you know, maybe the most important insight of the book is 
focusing on the intersection of these two major trends, right? This digital currency trend and this de-dollarization trend. And so we've talked a lot about the technology. Let's talk more about this de-dollarization side of things. Um, and, and, and where, where is this? Because it's, it's pretty obvious. This is something that's going on. Major, major macro investors have been talking about it for a while. Um, you're the first person I've seen put these put these two together. Uh, but w- let's talk about this de-dollarization trend. Where's it coming from, and and where does it look like it's going? Sure, the U.S. derives a tremendous amount of power from being the global reserve currency issuer, and it, it, it's worth mentioning. There's a counter argument to that. There are some economists who hold the opposite view. They feel that the U.S. dollar, by being reserve currency, is subject to so much artificial appreciation that it creates a huge barrier to U.S. businesses being able to export their products. So there is a counter side to that. But I very much fall on the side that Ray Dalio falls on, which is the U.S. gets immense, immense value from being the world's global reserve currency issuer. The way that that works is, you know, if you ask yourself the question, how is it possible We've had so many smart people for the last 30, 40 years tell us, look, the U.S. government is borrowing and spending beyond its means. We're creating this unserviceable debt that's going to be the doing in of the country someday. We've got to stop. Well, you've got politicians who say deficits don't matter. And as much as that spits in the face of common sense, if you look at what's happened, there really hasn't been much adverse consequence to running these ridiculous deficits. The, the national debt just gets bigger and bigger, but the, the end of the world has not come yet. How is that possible? The answer is because the, the U.S. dollar is the world's global reserve currency, what that means is that there's a tremendous artificial demand both for dollars in order to settle international trade and also for U.S. Treasury bonds to serve as reserve assets for central banks. Central bank reserve assets are like the piggy bank for an entire country. It's the emergency assets that they sell in order to raise cash to defend their own currency if necessary in a crisis. It's absolutely critical to central bankers that they have reserves that they can liquidate quickly and raise cash in order to defend their own currency. And there's a network effect which almost requires them to use U.S. treasuries for this purpose. And if you ask yourself, why is it that with so many people around the world getting angry about the amount of what they perceive as abuse. You know, the U.S. uses its reserve currency status to bully the European Union. It says, look, we're imposing sanctions against Iran. That means you can't do business with Iran. And, and European companies say, hey, wait a minute. Our government hasn't sanctioned Iran. We want to do business with Iran. That's perfectly legal in our country. The U.S. government says, oh, yeah? Well, we're going to threaten to sanction the SWIFT payment network, which is the world's... Uh, global wire transfer system and uh, if they don't cut Iran off. And so there's no way to do business with Iran because we're cutting them out of, and I've actually heard U.S. officials use the phrase, our SWIFT payment network. Well, the SWIFT payment network is owned by a Belgian consortium. The notion of the U.S. government describing it as theirs is ridiculous. But the U.S. government has been successful at intimidating the SWIFT uh, payment network, saying, look, you play ball with us, you cut Iran off, you cut them out of the network when we tell you to, or we're going to impose sanctions on you, SWIFT. And that has been sufficient to uh, 
coerce or intimidate SWIFT into doing whatever the U.S. government tells them to do. I've got a whole chapter about this uh, in the book. So you've got a lot of people around the world that are angry about the U.S. abusing its authority. And it used to be people like China and Russia. Well, China and Russia have kind of been adversaries for, for you know, 60, 70, 80 years. It's really no surprise. Just this summer, we had the European Union at the United Nations in New York City coming out and standing shoulder to shoulder with the Iranian finance minister saying, we're going to do something about the U.S. abusing its power and we're going to create an alternative payment mechanism to allow our European companies to continue to do business with Iran, a country which has not been sanctioned by the United Nations. And, you know, people in, in businesses in Europe which are not within the United States territorial jurisdiction should not be bullied by the U.S. government. So we're seeing even Europe, a longtime U.S. ally, siding with China and Russia, saying the U.S. is abusing its authority as global reserve currency issuer. So a lot of people want to change this. The problem is there simply is no viable alternative to the U.S. Treasury market for central bank reserve assets. If you're not going to use U.S. Treasuries, what are you going to use instead? Chinese, uh, you know, Government bonds, it's a closed currency system. You can't possibly do that. Russian government bonds, the Russian ruble has crashed in the last couple of years. Russia defaulted on its sovereign debt in 98. There's lots of reasons not to do that. What are you going to do? Use Argentine uh, central bank uh, you know, issued debt in order to, to uh, serve as your, your reserve asset? There simply is no alternative to the U.S. Treasury bond as a central bank reserve asset. Now, what that does for the United States is it breeds a huge amount of complacency where most people in the U.S. say, hey, nothing the world can do. The dollar is king. There ain't nothing they can do about it. The way I look at this, Jesse, is there's a whole lot of people around the world that are motivated very strongly to work as hard as they can to figure out how to create a viable alternative to the U.S. Treasury market. And one of the things I described toward the end of the book, I've got a whole chapter about how a digital sovereign bond market could be created for the purpose of upstaging the dollar as the world's global reserve currency. So, you know, there's a, a really strong uh, international trend. A lot of people, a lot of governments around the world are frustrated with U.S. hegemony over the financial system, but there's been nothing that they could do about it. And I believe digital currency opens the door to provide them with alternatives so that there are things they could do about it. And I think that's why digital currency is likely to be where the battleground uh, is that this whole question of dollar hegemony gets fought out. And, and another really interesting point that you've made, I think there's there's a whole group of people out there that, you know, have avoided cryptocurrencies just because they, you know, maybe they're technophobes or who knows what, or they just don't believe in, you know, uh, digital money. But one of the other interesting insights that, uh, that, that you put in the book is that, you know, China and Russia, if they were creating a supranational digital currency, could make it backed by gold which would essentially give a lot of people more confidence in this potential new currency than they would otherwise have in, in fiat currencies or uh, a digital currency that's not backed by gold. 
Well, and I, that's uh, exactly right. And, and what I think, it's not just China and Russia, but as I look at this whole field of digital currency, as you say, a lot of people, they, they correctly look at cryptocurrencies and say, wait a minute, these are bits and bytes on a network. There's no intrinsic value here. It doesn't even have fiat value because no government has sanctioned it. Although I, I wouldn't be surprised if that changes and some governments start to adopt Bitcoin as an official second currency. Uh, but for the moment, there is no government that has sanctioned Bitcoin as their official currency. Therefore, it's not even fiat currency. It's less than fiat currency. People have looked at that and said, uh-uh, very understandable. But people certainly use government-issued conventional currencies. If there was a government-issued digital currency, which had a lot of benefit over conventional currency, I think that by itself makes that digital currency much more appealing than a conventional non-digital uh, government-backed currency. But when you get to gold-backing, uh, I think that the world is slowly waking up to just how screwed up this whole fiat currency system is. And what I've said in the book, I, I gave China and Russia as the examples, but it could be someone else. If somebody creates an international uh, digital sovereign bank, let's say it's headquartered in Switzerland just for the sake of, of the, uh, the legal system and, and the uh, neutrality that Switzerland's uh, legal system affords, it could be created by China and Russia, but it could also be created by uh, Sand Hill Road, you know, venture capitalists who are saying, hey, we, we could hire the smartest guys in Silicon Valley to engineer a fantastic digital global reserve currency system. And we could create a digital sovereign bank and then encourage nations around the world to join it. Uh, it, it could be created by anybody. I think if you created that independent, supranational digital sovereign bank, uh, or, or uh, digital central bank, and you said to a number of large countries around the world, look, this thing is going to have a gold-backed currency. The currency tokens are going to sell well above their gold-backing value. So let, let's just use U.S. dollar uh, terms for sake of example. What I describe in the book is let's suppose the actual gold-backing was for each digital token was worth about 60 cents worth of gold, U.S., you know, 60 cents U.S., but the token is selling for a dollar U.S., so it's considerably higher than the value of its gold backing. But we're going to give the founders the, the seed opportunity to put tons and tons of gold into vaults someplace. You'll get your digital tokens at a one-to-one. -one. So if you end up not liking the way this thing goes, all you have to do is come and redeem your digital tokens and say, I want my gold back. And we'll give you your gold back. We'll take it back out of the vault and give it to you. If you do put your gold into this system and we create these digital tokens, you're going to see a seniorage profit of 60% immediately on these digital tokens. And we're going to create a new digital currency system, which replaces the SWIFT network. It does all kinds of things. It's much better, gives better monetary policy tools. Its monetary policy is broken into zones so that different national governments, this, this addresses a, a, an issue which you're very familiar with, Jesse, that's been talked about for a long time around the euro currency, which is creating a monetary union in the absence of a fiscal union. And the problem is if you apply the same monetary policy across several different countries' money system, then what you end up with is a, a breakdown where 
different countries going through different points in their economic cycle don't have the right monetary policy. What you didn't have the ability to do in a conventional system like the euro is to zone that uh, that currency system in what I'm calling a zoned digital monetary policy architecture where each different country has its own monetary policy zone and its own monetary policy tools for its central bankers, but it participates in a global network and a global currency system. Um, you can do things with digital currency technology that you can't do with conventional currency. And I think that if somebody creates that supranational digital central bank, the, the key is you've got to get the major central bankers of the world on board. And I think a way to entice them is to say, look, if you want to get in later, you're going to have to buy the tokens like everybody else. But if you want to get in on the ground floor, we'll give you a one-to-one for the gold redeemability, and that means you'll be able to get your gold back if if you don't like the way this thing goes. I think that could set the stage to create this supranational digital currency system that would be gold back and would be... Just imagine in this day and age, if... If you are buying uh, government-issued bonds today from small countries because they, they offer relatively high yields from Vietnam and from Venezuela and from you know various different uh, small countries around the world, wouldn't you much rather be buying those bonds on a digital sovereign bond market and denominated in a currency which is backed by and convertible into gold? That would be so much better. And the reason we haven't been able to have a real representative money system is because every time we put one government in charge of it, the government ends up changing the rules and, uh, and abusing the system and spending beyond its means. Digital currency technology gives us the way to create a trust barrier where no one government has that authority. And we, uh, we could enforce a representative digital currency system on a global scale that would be far superior to any monetary system that's ever existed in world history before. So the technology is there to start designing and building this. The thing is, why would anybody design and build it until you've figured out how you're going to sell it to the major central banks of the world? And I think that's the next really big bridge to be crossed. And that just leads right into my next question, which is, you know, one of the more exciting things that you discuss in the book, and you admit that you're really just scratching the surface of possibilities, um, overlaying, you know, smart contracts on top of this digital currency network. And there's just so many potential applications to make it more efficient and more reliable than, uh, you know, the, the, the tools and things we're using today. Yeah, smart contracts, you know, if I look at the whole cryptocurrency trend. I think that the concept of smart contracts, and uh, and I, I guess we should define for any of your listeners who don't know what we're talking about, what, what, what we're talking about. The idea is you build a, if you think of a digital currency system like Bitcoin, think of that currency system like a computer program, like Microsoft Excel. It's a, it's a cool program that does some function. If you look at the Ethereum cryptocurrency, you don't want to think about that one as a program. You want to think about it as an operating system like Microsoft Windows that allows other programs to run on top of it. Smart contracts are financial application programs that run on top of a digital currency system. And in the cryptocurrency space, Ethereum is the cryptocurrency that's done the most to advance this concept. Now, it's still at its infancy. And there was a huge hack and somebody stole $50 billion worth of uh, I'm sorry, $50 million worth of Ethereum one day, which, uh, you know, you hate it when that happens. Uh, but uh, 
I, I, my, my real point here is we're at the very, very early stages of this technology and what you want to look at smart contracts for is not what Ethereum smart contracts do today, but, you know, look at when they invented the right flyer and it's like, wow, this opens the door to a whole bunch of things. It's not the right flyer, this tiny little airplane that didn't even have a pilot seat is going to change the world. It proved something possible that made that paved the way for the airline industry and military aviation and everything else. Smart contracts in Ethereum are like the right flyer of uh, financial application systems built on top of a digital currency system. They're showing us the way, they're paving the way of possibility, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of innovation in coming years about this. But I think eventually we'll get to the point where there are major, and, and the digital sovereign bond market I describe in a whole chapter of the book is, is a perfect example of this. There'll be major application systems and market systems that are created as smart contract application systems on top of a digital currency system. I mean, to me, reading through this stuff is just absolutely fascinating, and the applications are endless, and it seems you know, inevitable that we're going to be moving this direction. It's just a matter of time. One of the things that you do write about in the book also, and that was one of the first things that came to my mind, is we've seen you know, uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, new technologies, whether it's social media or, or you know big data and these kinds of things, um, kind of come back and have a lot of negative ramifications for society and democracy and these things that people didn't anticipate in the beginning. And essentially, you know, move fast and break things has you know actually become prophetic in ways that Mark Zuckerberg didn't didn't see coming. Uh, how can we be sure that that these types of technologies aren't going to be used? in ways that Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, was um, you know, worried about when he created Bitcoin in the first place. Oh, I think it's worse than that, Jesse. I don't think it's how can we be sure that that won't happen. I think it's a certainty that that will happen, that what we will see, and it's, I'm amazed it's taken so long for it to happen, is governments will look at this and say, wait a minute, just as Bitcoin was designed to take away the ability of government to trace and monitor and control private uh, details of, of, of people's private lives that are none of government's business, boy, if you're the government, you could design a currency system with the exact opposite goal, to make it possible for the government to have Orwellian control over everybody's finances so that every penny of wealth that exists anywhere on the planet. The government knows who got it, who, who has it, where they got it from, when they got it, under what circumstances they got it, who gave it to them, and even has the ability to claw back and void transactions they don't approve of, seize money. You could, you know, one of the things I describe in the book is, is there are people in the U.S. government today who believe sincerely, and I can't believe this is true, but it is, they believe that our savings should work like frequent flyer points where you have an expiration date. And if you don't spend them by a certain date, they expire worthless. Now, I think that's ludicrous, but there are people who believe that anybody who has wealth has a social obligation to spend it for the purpose of supporting the economy and that if they don't, they should be punished for it. 
that's just such a ludicrous idea, but it's very, very easy to design a digital currency system that enforces ridiculous bad ideas like that and turns them into reality. So there's probably, as much as I think there's opportunity here for the world to become a much, much better place with digital currency technology, there is an equal, if not larger, possibility that governments will abuse this technology toward an Orwellian outcome that will threaten the liberty and privacy of every human being on the planet. And I think it's unavoidable at this point. The cat's out of the bag. Uh, Satoshi's invention of double-spend-proof digital cash is well understood. Governments will figure out how to use it to their advantage, and they will figure out how to design digital currency systems that have the opposite properties of Bitcoin, where the whole system is designed to make it possible for the government to trace, monitor, and control everything. And, um, you know, eventually we the people have to step up and say, hey, we don't want our governments to create systems that undermine our privacy. In this day and age, most of the trend in society is moving away from individual liberties in favor of socialism and, uh, and collectivism. So it's going to be a really interesting uh, experience to see what happens in coming years as we as a society navigate uh, through this, this conundrum of government suddenly having more power than I think it should. And, and, the, and ironically, Satoshi's inventions being used to achieve the exact outcome of what he set out to achieve. Well, there's, it seems like, you know, you talk about, um, you know, centralization of authority and things, and, and we're seeing a major backlash to these things. I think the backlash against big tech is just one manifestation of it, the increase in populism and all these things. Um, you know, some people have, have proposed that distributed ledger technology, um, has the power, the ability to, uh, I guess, take back not just in a currency sense, but I guess in, you know, in, as it relates to personal data, uh, and ownership of that has the ability to, um, you know, give people the power over their own data. What, what are your thoughts on, on, on that, uh, side of it? Well, it certainly is true that there is room for technology to protect the privacy rights of individual citizens and to make the world a better place. I guess my skepticism is, you know, in the beginning, Facebook was supposedly this wonderful free thing that helped you to express yourself and, you know, it was all for you. What people eventually figured out is that, you know, you are the product. They, they are designing these things with very unobvious design features who, which were conceived and created for the purpose of selling you out, selling your personal information to commercial interests. And I guess as long it's true, everything that you say, that from a technology standpoint, you could use distributed ledger technology to make the world a much better place and to protect everyone's privacy. You could also use it to create systems where everybody's personal data winds up on a publicly visible blockchain and it becomes possible for forensic analysts to do all kinds of things to figure out every place you've been and everything you've done and every email you've ever sent by examining some public data source someplace. So it remains to be seen how people use these technologies. And um, I, I think that, you know, anytime that there is power, there is potential for abuse. And distributed ledger technology offers incredible power. It, it could be used for good or for evil, and we'll see what happens. 
Well, I, I want to um, come back to discussing the currency side of things, and um, you know, I, I, I'm really fascinated to hear you know your thoughts about how you know a firm could you know create this uh, independence you know kind of uh, bank, um, but. What, what does all this mean for uh, for investors? How, how should they think about these trends? You know, this we've talked about the intersection of macro and, and technology here. How, how should people think of this in terms of how it relates to managing their own money? Well, first of all, if you feel inclined to speculate in cryptocurrency tokens, it's certainly your choice to do so. I, I won't judge you for it. I personally don't do that. I don't think it really makes sense. But if you do that, what I would say is, understand the picture. The real value of cryptocurrency tokens, the reason that they might have value, is that if I turn out to be wrong, and what happens is the vision of the crypto community comes true, where the central banks don't create their own digital currencies, but instead, the people of the world say, now look, we don't want central bank-issued money. We want private-issued money. We're not going to let our central banks get in the way of that. We're going to use a alternative payment system like bitcoin for commerce and that's what we want what you're betting on when you when you buy cryptocurrency tokens on speculation is that we're going to move closer to that eventual outcome of cryptocurrencies created by private sector private or, or you know privacy activists uh libertarian viewpoint guys in the private sector who invent things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're going to win out over central bankers in the end. And the authority of central bankers is not going to be able to squash them. A lot of people have a lot of, I think, very misplaced ideas that governments are powerless to do anything about cryptocurrency. It's simply not true. Governments can very easily, it's next to impossible to outlaw the existence of a network like Bitcoin, but to outlaw the conversion of Bitcoin into or out of fiat currency. So you can't exchange your dollars for Bitcoin or your Bitcoin for dollars. That's very easy for them to do. And they effectively outlaw cryptocurrency by doing something like that. So I think a lot of the people who believe that government is powerless to do about anything about crypto are mistaken. I think in reality, government is clueless what crypto really is. And as they start to figure out how much of a threat it really poses to the status quo, I think that uh, crypto is going to face more and more existential threats. Now, on the other hand, I definitely think that digital currency technology and distributed ledger technology is going to completely change the world that we live in in a big way. So if I were trying to be an investor in the digital currency revolution, what I would be doing is trying to figure out, okay, what are the companies that are designing both permissioned and decentralized distributed ledger systems that might have a chance at becoming the big thing? And particularly... If you think that there's a company that is on the verge of breaking the proof-of-work barrier and coming up with a truly decentralized distributed ledger, which does not require this incredibly inefficient proof-of-work algorithm, okay, that's a, a company that I want to invest in because they may be involved in uh, creating the technology which is ultimately used to re-engineer the entire 
monetary system that we live in. Uh, and I don't think it'll be cryptocurrency and libertarian privacy activists that are put in charge. I think governments will be in charge. And I think that the private sector opportunity, the really, really big one, the much bigger than Google and Facebook combined, than all of the FANG stocks combined, is for somebody to say, okay, we need to engineer and design the ultimate global digital central bank sponsored digital currency system with a digital uh, sovereign bond market. We're going to design and build that thing and sell it to the central banks of the world and persuade the major countries of the world to initially adopt it as a parallel currency in addition to their own national currencies and then eventually move to it as the new global digital reserve currency that replaces the dollar as the center of the global financial system. Somebody could come along and start working right now tomorrow. I, I could tell you exactly what to start working on if you wanted to start designing that currency system. That's the easy part. The question is, when is it going to be opportune to sell that to the major central bankers of the world and show them, hey, there's a better way and this is the thing you want to be on and here's the reason you should trust us, your private sector uh, partners, and give us the authority to create something that has government backing, unlike cryptocurrency, which exists to kind of thumb its nose at the central bankers, something that's designed to be sold to the central bankers. Um, who knows how to sell that to all the central bankers of the world? Whoever that is, whoever starts that entity, that is going to be the biggest uh, unicorn tech startup in the history of the world. Uh, the thing is, you could easily spend a whole lot of money and not succeed at success selling it to the governments of the world, and then where would you be? So you really got to have a, uh, a handle on how to do that. And I guess, you know, it is the, the defense industrial complex that uh, we've been so famously warned about by President Eisenhower going to be replaced by the central bank fintech complex, which defines the new monetary order of, of the next several centuries. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's entirely possible. And somebody's going to make a whole lot of money along the way. Knowing exactly who that is, way too early in the game. At this point, I would say if you want to be a technology investor in this space, look at who's doing the most interesting work on distributed ledger technology. And, you know, looking to that uh, kind of non-technology investment, or I guess the, the oldest uh, commodity currency known to man, what, what are your thoughts on owning gold in the context of all these trends? I think, uh, first of all, I, I've been watching gold very closely. I think that gold, just from a macro standpoint, completely independent of this whole digital currency conversation, gold is going to have its day in the sun and it's going to have a major, major run higher. I, I think almost certainly new all-time highs, probably doubling the old all-time highs into several thousand dollars per ounce. And I don't mean next week or next month. Uh, I, I mean over the next 10 years, I think that's going to happen. The thing is, is it done to the downside yet? And there's so many reasons that I think this dollar rally that we're seeing right now is set to continue. I, I think we could see a final dump down to a thousand or even below a thousand. Once you get below a thousand on gold, though, you're not just below break even cost for miners, you're at cash cost of production for a lot of miners where gold mines would just be shut in and closed down. So there really is a hard floor somewhere around 
between $750 and $900 per ounce, where the price just really can't go below that because there would be so much shutting in. You know, production would go completely to zero at that point. So I, I think that there could be one final downside dump in gold, but eventually the next really big move in gold is to the upside, and it's going to be huge. It could be exacerbated to the upside, if someone were to come along and do what I am describing in the book, but I'll be the first to tell you, I don't think there's any room for anybody to come and you know create a, if you were going to create a, a gold-backed digital currency system, it would take a few years just to build the technology for that before you'd be ready to start taking gold. So the point where a gold-backed digital currency is one of the drivers behind a massive rally that drives the price of gold much higher, I think that'll happen someday. But, you know, that's that's 5 to 15 years in the future. That's not tomorrow or next month. The, the What happens uh, real soon here is we find out whether there's one more wave higher in uh, the dollar and lower in gold, or if what we're seeing right here around eleven fifty to twelve hundred dollars is going to be the bottom and it's all uphill from here. I don't know, but one way or another, gold's going to have its day in the sun. Well, we just, I mean, barely scratched the surface of everything you covered in the book. And I, I really have to recommend it to my audience because I think you do a fantastic job, not of just discussing the potential for the cryptocurrency, but also discussing a lot of uh, really important macro concepts that I, most investors I talk to are just aren't familiar with. And so it's a great introduction to a lot of these key macro concepts and then where technology intersects with them. So where, where can people find the book? The book is available in audiobook, uh, Kindle, and paperback. The Kindle and paperback is at Amazon, and the audiobook is only at macrovoices.com. But you can find all three if you go to macrovoices.com forward slash BB for Beyond Blockchain. That's a landing page that has, uh, there's a, a free sample where you can either read or listen to the first chapter of the book for free. And uh, there's ordering information. If you want the paperback or the Kindle version, it's just a link to Amazon. And uh, if you want the audiobook version, it's a link to a different website that sells the audio version. That's terrific. Thank Eric, I got to really thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights with my audience. This has been really special. Thank you very much. Well, Jesse, I can't thank you enough because you're one of very few people, as your audience knows, who really does his homework. You actually read the book before you do the interview, and your questions have been, uh, you know, orders of magnitude more thoughtful and insightful than I get from other interviewers. So I, I think your audience already knows you are the second best financial podcaster on earth, and... Um, uh, that, that I couldn't resist that one. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm not going to have anybody on this podcast that I don't admire personally and professionally. So um, it's it's my honor to to have the chance to you, you gave me an, uh, an early look at the book, and of course, I was going to read through it just you know out of respect for for you and and your your knowledge and, and wisdom in this area. So um, yeah, it's been been terrific, and I, I, I'm grateful to you. And we look forward to getting you back on Macro Voices again soon too. Anytime. I'm happy to do it. So. Fantastic. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss.
There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss. <laughs>